I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to this episode of I Was There Too. My name is Matt Gorley. This is the show where I talk to people who were there in the great scenes of cinema history. Today, a little hodgepodge episode. We get to talk more Back to the Future with Jeffrey Wiseman, who played George McFly after Crispin Glover infamously bowed out of the role. Or was forced out? Nobody really seems to know. But I found it interesting to talk to Jeffrey, who has the unique perspective of playing a character that's already been previously established, but also has to almost seem like it's the same actor playing it. Many actors have stepped into roles played by previous actors, but this one seems curious and different in that they almost tried to pass it off as if Crispin Glover never left. In fact, Crispin Glover sued the production because of that very reason, that it made it seem like he was in the film and using his likeness. After that, we'll talk to Ben Acker and Ben Blacker about what it's like to work with the Lucasfilm Story Group in their experience in writing a Star Wars novel, one that does me personally a great favor, having to do with being part of the Star Wars canon. Very, very exciting. Let's just get right into it. Thank you for listening and enjoy. The films, Back to the Futures 2 and 3. The years, 1989 and 90. The role, George McFly. The actor, Jeffrey Wiseman. Jeffrey Wiseman, how did you approach playing a previously established character in the sequels to Back to the Future? Like, as an actor, and in the interest of bringing something of your own to the character, I'm curious what you found the ratio of impersonation versus acting to be for this role. Uh, well, Matt, that's a very good question. It, it It's basically a mix of both acting and impression as you say, because the the uh, groundwork had been laid. You know, Crispin is so unique in his uh, talent and performance and his timing and all. And uh, I, when I first worked with him at a on a film at AFI uh, the year before he got the first Back to the Future film, I thought he was just remarkable, very uh, singular talent. And so I was 
compelled to try to stay in touch with him. And, and when the first Back to the Future film came out, I said, my God, this guy's knocking it out of the park. He's great. And then when the opportunity arose for me to uh, be his photo double for part two, uh, I was thrilled. You know, I, I wanted to work with him. I even called him and said, hey, say a good word for me. Uh, you know, I, I could use the work. And when I found out that he was not any longer part of the project and that I'd be taking over the role, I was shocked. I was like, how am I going to fill these big shoes? There's no way they can do this without him. And uh, originally I thought, oh, they probably need George in two places at the same time. And I'm going to double him over here while he's over there, you know, like like Kevin did for Michael J. Fox. And when it turned out that I was, you know, playing the role, they gave me Crispin screen tests. And I studied, of course, the films extensively uh, to get the physicalization and the vocalization and all the mannerisms. Um, and to answer the question, doing an impression basically of his George. But then I was able to advance on it a little bit somewhat uh, when we went to 2015 the McFly household of the future. And so, but I tried to, you know, keep respect and, and honor Crispin's work by keeping, you know, the, the vocalization types stuff that he laid down and gestures, you know, ah, ah, you know, the, the iconic laugh. In fact, that's, you don't see it too much in the final cut, but in the uh, outtakes or bonus material, I, there is some like in the scene pizza, if you get to see that. I, I do a, definitely a Crispin laugh and and the gestures with the hands and holding the hair back and all, all that stuff that he really he did his viewpoints work. If you're familiar with the acting term of viewpoints, his pacing and his physicalization, his relationship with hair and, and costumes is all uh, really quite wonderful. Because he's such a specific actor and and one of a kind. Does that make it more difficult because you have to feel like you have to get closer to the mark or in a way easier because there's specifics that you can reach for when trying to do a similar portrayal? You, you kind of answered it. It's both. <laughs> I, it's, it's great to have the example of the original, the work, and if it is singularly eccentric, as in his case, it's much easier to zone in on that and then re repeat and, and get it down. Whereas if it's a more vague or not not so specific, uh, it may be harder to nail. But then again, when you get to advance on it, you get to maybe even take what they have a, a, a small amount of and turn the volume up on that and try to go further with it. As In the case of the Back to the Future movies, I wasn't necessarily invited to table reads and rehearsals that much. So I wasn't given the opportunity to really advance that much. Uh, there, there were a couple things, example, in the 2015 stuff, the, the, when we went back to uh, 55 and chasing the almanac and all that, I basically was repeating the fight with Biff and kissing Lorraine on the dance floor. All that stuff was already laid down and we were just had to recreate it from different angles. And then in 2015, when we got to the future, the McFly household, I was able to, advance a little bit. I had a little time, as you know, I was hung upside down from out, outdoors, outside of the front door, all the way through the kitchen. So hanging upside down for a couple of weeks was lots of fun. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the first things I remember uh, while I'm hanging at the front door is my head was hanging about butt level with Michael J. Fox's Marlene, and they had put him in the hot pants, orange hot pants, and 
patted them out to give him a butt, give her a butt. And I thought, oh, my God, it looks like they gave him a pumpkin butt. And I was able to improvise and come up with that line, how's granddad's little pumpkin? <laughs> also got to eat a banana upside down. <laughs> was the choice to have George McFly hanging upside down so much an attempt to obscure his face or for more sinister reasons having to do with Crispin Glover originally being in this role or going to come back in the role? Well, it's apparent that you've done your homework. Uh, I think it's both um, because both have been uh, talked about that. Uh, yes, the thought was, you know, we'll, we'll uh, I, you know, I think maybe it was the torture thing more than the to obscure because I believe that he was hung upside down in the script before I came on the pr Paradox project. It was originally called Paradox. It was part two and three in the same script. And I, I think because a, a crew member actually came over and said, you know, I think all this torture was meant for Crispin, um, you know, was told to me. And I was like, yeah, OK, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, Crispin really pushed a lot of people's buttons on the first film. And, and uh, to be blatant, you know, Bob Gale and Spielberg and company did not get along with the fellow. And uh, I think it was payback. <laughs> <laughs> Which I got to endure. So. Yeah, wow. It's not fair. When you called Glover and asked him to put in good word for you as the photo double, did he know at the time that you were potentially replacing him, do you think? I really couldn't say. I'll, all I did innocently, because I had his number, was try to get him to uh, give me a character reference or you know, a recommendation, this guy's good, because we had worked together on a film. I thought maybe he remembered me and, and would help me out since, since my wife at the time was expecting our second child and I needed my medical coverage. Uh, but I did not hear back from him and I did end up getting the part and got my medical coverage. So uh, that kind of worked out. Win-win. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he tracked me down. Ironically, I was doing an event for Universal in Boston and somehow he tracked me down in Boston. I'm st it's still a mystery to me how he found me at that hotel um, to uh, tell his sob story of how they use his uh, likeness or actually footage of him without paying him what he thought he was worth and uh, how they abused him on the first film. And, and would, would I be uh, open to helping him in his case, which, you know, he had a very compelling argument. Why, you know, you're going to use, an actor's face and, and footage without really letting him negotiate. I mean, that's, it's just not fair. And uh, so uh, that's, he, he didn't really contact me until he was ready to sue. And what did he say when, when he did contact you? Oh, he, he just told the stories of how they abused him on the first film. And, and, you know, I, I could see his story. I'd heard the stories about uh, how he was abusive to others on the first film, uh, on the other side. So it was really odd being caught in the middle of this whole thing. And it was kind of odd since he, he didn't necessarily win his case, but he had enough going for him that he probably would have won. So they settled out of court for three quarters of a million dollars. And I thought, well, you know, I, I help, probably helped him a great deal here. At least he could do his, his call and thank me, which he never did. <laughs> <laughs> So how were you greeted by the cast and crew as not only the new guy, but the guy replacing the old guy? Uh, at first, it was very awkward. Really? I, I don't know that the even the makeup people were all that comfortable. You know, uh, some great, great makeup legends worked on that show from 
Kenny Myers and Marvin Westmore to Mike Mills and Nancy Vasta and Zoltan and his wife, people who won Academy Awards and, and all. And they were lovely to work with. There wasn't uh, necessarily any animosity, but I know that uh, Ken Chase, the original designer who got fired um, because of being ornery, uh, had – uh, I think mixed mixed feelings, and and when I'd go onto the set, one the first time, in fact, seeing Michael, in and when I was in the young George makeup, age seventeen, th- first thing out of his mouth was, "Oh, Chrisman ain't gonna like this," you know, oh, and and I had to screen test, you know, and and Zemeckis turned to Dean Cundey, the great cinematographer from Jurassic Park and uh, Halloween movies and all, and he says, "Dean, what do you think?" and and Dean just blatantly said, "I think we got Chrisman without the trouble." <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I knew I was in a weird place there. It was, it was very odd, you know, and I kind of felt like, oh my God, am I a scab here? What, what is going on? But ultimately, you know, they had a job they needed to do. Everyone who was being paid millions of dollars, except me, and, uh, and they had to, uh, continue this story of these wonderful films and make these films and couldn't be, uh, derailed by, uh, you know, the, the demands of Mr. Glover, though, you know, at the time Crispin was up and coming, I loved his work in River's Edge and his other film appearances. And I imagined he just had other commitments and, or, you know, thought he was worth the, the hundred thousand or a million, whatever he was holding out for. Uh, but, uh, Spielberg and, and Zemeckis did not. So, or, Bob Gale and company. Um, so, you know, they, they were in a, between a rock and a hard place and I needed the work. So the equation kind of worked out for me. If it wasn't me, it would, would have been another actor and probably the same type of story going on with the suit. Well, what a unique experience for you. I'm trying to think of another circumstance in film history. There certainly have been actors that have replaced other actors in the same role, James Bond or Dumbledore and Harry Potter, but yeah. never this infamously that I can think of. And to not only replace them, but to actually try to physically represent them with full prosthetics and makeup and almost make it the audience at least believe it's the same actor playing that role. Is there another example of that you can think of? Well, with the coming of the digital age, you see it now, example, the, the end of uh, Rogue One there oh, yeah. with yeah. Carrie Fisher. Now, now was that archive footage or was that Carrie Fisher and they just made her look younger? Do, do we know? Yeah, it <laughs> you was know? a complete CG recreation with another actress as the body, but a completely CG'd face. Okay, so... Did Carrie Fisher give her uh, uh, permission for that? Apparently she did, and same with Peter Cushing, whose character was recreated even in, in greater length. I, apparently his estate gave permission for that as well. Okay, so, so it is being done now even on a more advanced level. Instead of having to be in makeup for the application of the prosthetic makeup for four hours, you know, so they advanced on what I was involved in there. I, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. I think... Yes, it's great. Continue the story. Do whatever it takes. Uh, but don't do it without the original actor's approval. You know, give them a piece of this blockbuster. You know, I, I look back and, you know, I see those <laughs> Back to the Future films have probably made a billion dollars maybe a couple times. And here I 
I'm kind of still a starving actor and even was shortly after making the films. It, it really was uneven. You certainly have done your fair share of impressive roles here. Let's talk about a few of them. First of all, Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider, his return to the kind of that great anti-hero Western that he made famous in many ways. Tell us a little bit about your role in that. You know, I spoke with a writer while we were shooting on that, and he had been trying to get Clint to do that script for like 10 years. Oh, so even back in the day when he was kind of originally doing them, huh? Yeah, well, he, uh, I guess, was so happy, you know, doing fine, doing Dirty Harry movies. Uh, He didn't necessarily want to get back in the saddle. And he had success with the outlaw Josie Wales and, and had... I guess enough money thrown at him by Warner Brothers, and I, I believe Warner Brothers bought him a new bus for directing. Uh, you know, so uh, so he returned to it, and and it was kind of cool. I, I I didn't agree with uh, at the time. I remember saying, "Oh, I don't like violence in movies so much. Should I do this film?" And I was like, "What are you saying, Jeffrey? You've, you're co-starring with Clint? You've got to be kidding!" So I, you know. <laughs> Then looked more at the metaphor of the film. You know, Clint, it's not spelled out well uh, in the film. But if you look when he takes his shirt off inside uh, Carrie Snodgrass's character's little hut there, he's got scars of bullet wounds all around his heart. And he appears in the film out of nowhere in this snowstorm. So he's a ghost and the pale rider, pale ghost and pale horse. And, uh, that was kind of cool because he had been the ghost in High Plains Drifter and then there was the Shane element. So it was very much a tribute to Westerns and it was great to see him do a tribute. And then him coming back full bore in his next film, the Western, The Unforgiven, which he got the Academy Award for. It was It was really thrilling to see Clint do that. Johnny Dangerously. Oh, yeah. Uh <laughs> Amy Heckerling wanted a, a New York accent, and I, you know, I raised in, in L.A. and and I did have a, a step grandfather from Brooklyn, so I, you know, I, uh, so I would do my New York accent, East Toyton, you know, as best I could, and she just didn't buy it. She didn't like, she didn't like, it, but she was out down to the wire and she says, "All right, just just do your best and do this." And she gave me the uh, I Heart Johnny T-shirts to sell, the T-shirt vendor. In the scene with Dom DeLuise as the Pope and, you know, the big crowd scene, it was so silly. Uh, but it was so cool to be on that set working with that up-and-comer Michael Keaton and, and of course, Joe Piscopo and Mary Lou Henner and, and uh, uh, Maureen Stapleton, who I adored. Uh, so it was it was very cool to be on that. And uh, ironically, you know, being a starving actor, I, I did uh, catering to stay alive. And uh, catering company I worked for worked the rap party, <laughs> and and I'm serving drinks to Michael Keaton and Amy Heckerling, and Michael leans over to Amy and says, "It wasn't isn't he in the film?" It's, it was nice to be recognized by Michael. Uh, <laughs> well, you made it to the party one way or the other. That's right. Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> Let's talk about Twilight Zone, the movie. Yeah. Well, um, I was a, a very big fan of uh the mad max movies road warrior had come out and uh george miller was hot hot australian director and uh i got the call to audition for that film and i was like how they can't do that what i thought the film was dead in the water after the accident on the john landis set and uh 
my agent said, well, Spielberg decided since they got most of that segment in the can that he wanted to finish the film, which, you know, a lot of people thought was in bad taste. But I needed to work. I wanted to work. And I went in and auditioned. And my audition was to tell a joke. And it was, I think, his first time in Hollywood. And he was kind of taken by it all. And so was I. Not that I was my first time, but I just got along with him really great from the go-get. And it was really wonderful because, of course, I knew the original episode with William Shatner. <laughs> you know, it was like, OK, it's almost scary, this guy on the wing on that <laughs> version. But when you saw Larry Cedar, you know, from Deadwood yeah. as the creature on the wing of the airplane in this one. Yeah, that was terrifying. He was terrifying. And yet George Miller diffuses the terror with comedy. He he with Larry's great instincts, too, I'm sure. Uh, did the whole thing with shaking the finger, the That's monster right. shaking yeah. the finger, eating the, the gun and all. It was just delightful. And then there's if you freeze frame at that moment when uh, John, beautiful work John did in that, uh, lifts the, the shade and the monster is right there. There's one frame of John's eyes popping out of his head. Yeah, so go back and look for that. Wait, uh, that was done it was as like a special effect, just a frame insert? <laughs> Yes, and I I remember being very frustrated uh, about that in particular because that was the one day I was able to get John to commit to having lunch with me at the commissary, and uh, he was called back to to shoot that special effect. And uh, how about Saved by the Bell? How about it? <laughs> boy, I was ready to punch Casey Kasem. Why? Oh, what boy. happened? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the the episode is called Rockumentary, and it, I think it was written in haste to – well, I don't know if it was to do this or not. Elizabeth uh, uh, Berkeley. Berkeley had broken her leg in a skiing accident, and they had this episode where the, the kids all get together. It's a fantasy episode where it's obviously after high school, and they get a band together and become a big sensation and they all go their ways because how success affects them and all so on and so forth. And Elizabeth couldn't be in it because she had a broken leg. And uh, so I, I came in, uh, was asked to be uh, the guru for Screech, uh, the high geek. So I had, pre I was prepared. I had buck teeth. I already, already had my hair worn as a fright wig when I was playing Stan Laurel at Universal and elsewhere. I knew things that were funny and nerdy. So I came in and kind of blew him away with my thick glasses and pocket protector and all that and uh, and shot this thing. Now, I had this reveal when I my character gives Screech the magical retainer to have his wishes come true. Uh, I had this reveal that the retainer came out of this fez that I was wearing on my head to uh, hide my fright wig that I was wearing, my hair standing straight up. And Casey Kasem, as uh, you may know, uh, is Muslim. And he thought my wearing of the fez was offensive to the religion. And I was just doing it as a burlesque gag to reveal the, the, to get an extra laugh. I was building the laugh. And he made the producers force me to not use the fez. I was like, well, there goes my reveal. <laughs> well, and the retainer then came out of the spittoon or whatever it was. <laughs> well, the great religious versus comedy war continues on. Yes. Thank you, Casey. <laughs> Well, where can people find you today? Uh, I'm here at my place. Come on over. Okay. <laughs> we're, uh, we're hopping on a bus. No, I'm, I'm currently performing in a very 
compelling, interesting, immersive show in San Francisco that takes place in a 1923 speakeasy. And you could look it up at the uh, the speakeasysf.com. Uh, this the show is it's immersive theater where you follow a character that you're, you're interested in and you see their f- story unfold. And uh, I also am in rehearsal for a, a stage adaptation of Fisher King playing the Robin Williams role. And we're doing this as a fundraiser for Robin's charities for the homeless, maybe Parkinson's, since I've. I'm very active in uh, fundraising for Parkinson's when I can afford to. Uh, and, and you know, I do these uh, little reunions. I have a, a Back to the Future 2 cast reunion where at least four of us are doing the new New Jersey Horror Con and Film Festival at the end of March, beginning of April. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for talking to me today about your work. I appreciate it. Matt, thank you for having me on the show. I uh, look forward to maybe revisiting. Thanks again, Jeffrey. I'd be well. Well, I'm sitting here with two Bens for the price of one. Ben Acker, Ben Blacker. You know them from the Thrilling Adventure Hour, from various comic books. But what we're really here to talk about is something near and dear to my heart in so many ways. Their new novel, Star Wars, Join the Resistance. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Acker, Ben Blacker. Hi, guys. Hi, Matt. That's Ben Acker. Hi, Matt. That's Ben Acker, too. No, that's Ben Blacker. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for letting us be on what is probably our favorite podcast. The premier podcast of our hearts. Oh, come on. Well, let's just cut to the shit because I've mentioned this (laughs) on this podcast before that you guys canonized me (laughs) and Amanda in the Star Wars universe by naming a little marketplace on a planet, Gorley Lund. Yes. I can't tell Lund you. Lund Gorley. Lund Gorley. Oh, forget it. This well, there's a story. Right. There's a story Lund behind that. I haven't gotten it to it yet because you just gave me the book, and <laughs> I've been watching eight Back to the Future movies <laughs> for, for my All other eight. interview. Yeah, <laughs> but so I'm so excited to hear about that. The I hope, book. I hope we get to write those Back to the Future spinoff books. <laughs> oh God, Lund Gorley. You don't know. That's one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for me, including my immediate family. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Next, right? Well, they don't have the power to do this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> we we knew you would get a kick out of it. You, there are a couple of people that are such huge Star Wars fans and also want to be there too. Mm-hmm. Oh, if I may, yes. Uh, that sure. that we, there was no question we had to sneak your names in there somewhere. And also, you guys have great weird Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, real names. Star Wars. <laughs> they do. What what made you put Amanda in there? Because she's not a Star Wars. Uh, fan. The How come it's just not, oh, yeah. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, no, what Gourley happened just was, doesn't sound. It was Moz Gorley mm-hmm. for M O S. Oh, yeah. like Mos Espa and Mos Eisley. Yes. Uh-huh. Mos Gorley oh. for drafts, yeah. and then uh, we got the note that that was planet specific. Yeah, Tatooine based. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Which I had no idea. I and I feel I felt like I it was Moss something on the other planets, but they would know better than we. I mean, Story Group, the Star Wars Story Group, knows that stuff. That's their job. That's who they. Um, that's their whole. So yeah, they for came being. back to us and were like, "If you can affix some other word to the start of it instead of." Is months. there ever any kind of tone when they come back to you with that? Like, uh, "Hello." <laughs> <laughs> the whole like if you're uh, writing a Star no, Wars novel, fact, we shouldn't have to tell you this. They, uh, they, I think, try very hard not to have that tone. Yeah, well, we that's met nice. them in person, and I, uh, I used the non, the non-word and Jedi's to pluralize uh, the non-word Jedi. Right, like uh, deer. 
Right. Yeah, that exactly. they yeah. they went out of their way to politely work in the correction into the conversation without as opposed correcting to like, you directly. It's je- <laughs> the pl- the plural of Jedi is Jedi. Uh, everyone knows that. A monkey knows that. But there is um, so so Ben is right. Like they they do thank you try to not have that tone, but they really are internet nerds. Yeah. I don't know if people are familiar with story group, but they are these, like they were internet dwellers who were tracking all the Star Wars. A couple of them were, who were tracking all the Star Wars stuff. And then at a certain point, Lucasfilm kept going back to them and checking their website. So they just hired them. Uh, And now they officially keep the canon of Star Wars, which I wish we could get this fact check. (laughs) <laughs> but can you imagine the they day see, that they approached them, like them? cool guys. But imagine the day that they were approached oh, and yeah. went like, what? This thing I've been doing on the side is going to be official? Their heads probably exploded. I think, yeah. Well, it, it is. I mean, it's it, – I feel like that's like any of us who are now getting to play with these Star Wars toys is like we, we had the same reaction. When we were approached to do the book, yeah. Ben literally <laughs> said to the editor, do we have to – pretend to go away and talk to each other about this before we agree to do it because we want to do it. How were you approached? Uh, the editor, Michael Siglane, worked in the uh, worked as an editor at Batman, at DC, at the Batman office years ago. And so he knew uh, our friend Greg Rucka, who wrote Batman for him, uh, who had our contact information, was writing a Star Wars book uh, for them. And so... Uh, they had talked internally about this notion for a Star Wars book, and they had used as as context for the tone uh, Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars for, from our thrilling adventure hour. Ah. And so when they said, and who should we get to write it? They were like, well, well what about those guys? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, they, I mean, it really, it feels like, and we've seen this, I feel like, from everyone who's working on Star Wars things, mm-hmm. that everyone is so excited to be there. Mm. And so they have such good attitudes from like Mike is the sort of group editor to our editor, Jen Heddle to like the, the artists and the story group. And then people we know who are working on the movies and video games and stuff like everyone's, we grew up with it. So we're just so excited to be, part of it now and how much there's a conversation around it nobody's talking ndas are binding absolutely (laughs) how much of this do they come to you with an outline or is it just whatever you want they came to us with a broad notion they came Mm -hmm. to us with like uh kids who want to fly the x-wings and are not able to like they're too immature they're not um they're not there yet uh, and they gave us, you know, broad like stuff for books for Star Wars. <laughs> well, it kind of was. I oh, mean, it really? Was a bunch of kids joined the resistance. Think Goonies or Harry Potter in space okay, yeah. was kind of what they pitched us, and All then right. let us create the characters and create the story. Goonies makes more sense than Taps, I think. Yeah, <laughs> you mean as a movie? <laughs> yeah. Well, the fun of Taps in a young adult novel. We, there was a school class. I'd like draft. to see it. <laughs> I'd like to see it. So. How long did you guys work on it? You had to have a pretty quick turnaround on this. Am I right about that? It was – we talked about it for so long. Yeah. it's a, a th- Casually it's or like a, meetings where you'd sit down and go like, okay, both. We had, break we, the story. We officially got started theoretically <laughs> a month before Force Awakens comes out. And I can tell you that for sure because a month before we mm-hmm. went up to Lucas Studio and were shown the PowerPoint presentation version. Of, of Force, Force Awakens. Awakens. Yeah. And what oh, was which your was so exciting. So, so what was your initial feeling of that? Just seeing a PowerPoint presentation? It was cr- like 
I was more excited for the movie having seen yeah. the presentation. I thought you said I was more excited for the, for the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> oh, it was a great PowerPoint wait till you, presentation. Wait till this comes out in Microsoft <laughs> Office. Until you've seen storyboards of The Force Awakens, you haven't really experienced <laughs> they the movie. They didn't spoil thing, as much stuff as you would think they would yeah. have to, to to give us an idea of the story. Uh, the, the last third of the movie, they said, and then there's a Star War. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. you don't need to know what happens yeah. there. It doesn't affect the books. Okay. So And then we had uh, – and then, yeah, it took a while for contracts. And I think that in the book world, it's different from the Hollywood world where we don't start a thing until the contract is signed. Right. Because yeah. it could all go away. Right. Uh, and so we signed the contracts and they were like, all right, so can we get the manuscript in like what, a week or two? <sighs> yeah, yeah, that was the notes we made. <laughs> uh, and the, and it, everybody was totally understanding about everything. Like it's great place to work and um, – it was uh, no. We're we're starting it, <laughs> and and it's I mean, our you first. You can have a stack of papers if you want. Sure, there will be oh, nothing you can on get it. a manuscript. Yeah. Like we could probably get one of those, but not this one. And this was in like May, May of twenty fifteen, sixteen, twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. And yes. so, are these all? And then we had about a month to write it. Original characters, or did they give you any that you had to include? All the leads are original characters. There are cameos from some Star Wars favorites, uh, which were really fun to write. Any, anyone you can tell us about? Sure. I will be reading this. Well, they do. Uh, I mean, the kids, most of the book takes place on the Resistance base, or at least half of it takes place on the Resistance the, base that oh, we see in, in Force, Force Awakens. Awakens. Okay, yeah. So they, <laughs> General Leia is not in it, but her office is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is this the one on Yavin 4? Is it that uh, we can't say we can't. Uh, we wait. can't divulge the location of the resistance base. Oh, I don't care how much damn, you torture you us. Almost fell. <laughs> damn, I'm a first order guy from way back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, 30 years ago, it didn't exist before that. But, um. <laughs> the ties are interesting. We actually had to do a deep dive into the empire and the sort of that 30 year gap because they have filled a lot of it in with some of the novels and some of the comics. And so we had to sort of look at that stuff and, and figure out who was where and who was doing what and what – really what people would know because our book takes place right before Force Awakens. Uh-huh. So what would a 15-year-old kid know about what had come 30 years before, 40 years before? Right. I don't know. It was, it was neat and some of that history is – that's the fun of Star Wars is there's this world, there's this history to explore. But for, for existing characters, uh, we got to write Admiral Akbar, which was super fun. Yeah, <laughs> It's such an easy voice mm-hmm. to write. I mean, he has so little dialogue in the movies, but they're, <laughs> it's memorable dialogue. Look, he'd be great for this show. Oh, he just died, didn't he? Did, he did, yeah. yeah. I thought about him, but yeah, he's... He even been. in Force Awakens, he does the voice for Akbar, and you can tell, yeah. well, that's an older Akbar there. That's... <laughs> Yeah, we um, did try to do an older Akbar in the book. Really, walking <laughs> well, sure. stick. Yeah, he's. I mean, it's thirty years later. Skin's a little dried out. <laughs> Ew. Uh, Ew. <laughs> well, tell me more about Lund Gorley. Let's. Uh, <laughs> what can you tell us about this marketplace? Is it a rogues gallery? Is it a uh, high, high end? It's a real jerk store. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking Ross Dress for Less, or Nordstrom Rack, or Saks Fifth Avenue. Here. <laughs> Ooh, definitely Ross. Do they sell Ivanka shoes at this place? No, definitely no, not. No. Okay. You think that survives? That's empire shit. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, it's it, the city center on the planet of Dirk Teal. Right. Are you familiar with this planet? Yeah, you didn't make it up. I thought you made it I up. I didn't. Yeah, yeah, we talked about this. Is this where um, the Bosques are from? 
I, I thought it was where the Trandashans, is that right? But it was. <laughs> you can't say that anymore. Don't give us any super ego nonsense. <laughs> no, that's real. I think Boston Trandoshans, is a Trandoshans. That's some Fletch. Now I got to look that up because I'm going to catch hell if it's not. But keep, <laughs> from keep talking. From every, they're out there. They, yeah. they, yeah. they live. <laughs> All right. Um, I do it know is, that name. Dirk Teal is the home to, they're sort of lizard people. There is a lizard. Story no, Trandosha. Here. Yeah. That so sense. that was my initial idea. And then there was something I couldn't do with that planet. Like it didn't quite fit into what we needed. Okay. So the reason we went with Dirk Teal is I like the look of the lizard people who live there. And there's one guy in Star Wars, in Mos Eisley, I think, in the cantina scene. <gasps> oh, I know what you're talking about. The Snaggletooth guy. Yes. Yes. That's right. Okay. Yes. His name is Snaggletooth. Yeah. Which was only named from the action figure. Right. Because yes, and there there were two versions of that action figure: one that's tall, right. one short, and one's real rare. I'll that's take right your now. word for it. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's right. That character <laughs> Snaggletooth is not in the later editions of the movie. I didn't realize. They I think he's out? been digitally removed and replaced with something else. That of all the ones to get rid of, I know. But oh. uh, I read that just recently. Um, so those are the beings who live on Dirk Teal, and they're. Our lead character, Mattis, is from uh, an orphanage there, and they get bussed into the city center, Lundgorli, to go to church and to do shopping. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, to sell the Hemel that they harvest. Is Hemel a thing you made up? Or is I that a don't word? remember. It might be a thing, a Star Wars thing, but I might have made it up. I'm so looking forward to, to reading this. How, how much time is spent in Dirk Teal, would you say? I mean, in, in Lundgorli. I think the first chapter. Yeah, at least the oh, first. God, chapter. I could have gotten that done couple. last night. I, I wish I would have known. I thought for sure it'd be like right in the meat of it. You know? <laughs> oh no, in the meat of it is, is a, a, a friend of ours who likes Star Wars much more than yeah, you. Yeah, Dan Telfer, Tony Thaxton, Tony Thaxton. Tony, uh, I don't. For people who don't know, Tony Thaxton is a musician with uh, I want to say Queens of the Stone Age. No, no, uh, no. Am I wrong? The, the, the <laughs> Green Preservation the Society. That may be right. Is the band. <laughs> Uh, Motion City Soundtrack is Tony's band, and uh, Tony is as big a Star Wars fan as you. He may – he well, yeah, I, I wonder – he may be bigger in his collector's sense. Like he has <laughs> yeah, a million a toys. I don't have – I have my old toys. I don't have new toys. Yeah. Though I do have something new that we'll talk about in a minute oh. at the show that we're, oh, yes. we're doing. Yeah. Uh, but Tony texted last night, Ben named a bird after Tony, a bird in uh, on the planet of Vodron. Uh, Which is Tony the Toucan? (laughs) Yeah, it's a real Fruit Loops side story. (laughs) What is the name of the bird? The Darth Exton. Oh, that's good. Thanks. Who else do we know that you guys have worked in? Uh, Well, our friend Todd. (laughs) Todd Cooper. Todd Cooper, a friend of every podcast. And friend of everybody that that meets him. America's plus one, Todd Cooper. (laughs) Does he say that or you say that? He he used to introduce himself that way. (laughs) That's pretty good. Um, we saved uh, Todd's mention for a horrific, just disgusting creature that attacks the kids uh, towards the end of the book. It is literally called a Todd. T-A-W-D. <laughs> that's good. God. Oh. Uh, Mike Furman's name oh, that's is, right. is, is in there. We what made him he? into a religion. The uh, church they go to at Dirk Teal is the is Firmist. Yeah. How do you spell that? With a P-H. P-H, but then Est? I, uh, IST. I, okay. Oh, first. Yeah. Yeah, and I we see. wanted it, it was interesting also. Look, guys, if you love Star Wars, get, get yourself to Wikipedia yeah. and poke around because there are these various shades of 
religious orders right. there. And and we even saw some in Rogue One, which I thought was yeah. really neat. But like to take what they had existing and sort of extrapolate like, well, this isn't a force-based religion, yeah. but how do we create a religion in Star Wars that won't get in the way of the stuff they do? Uh, like that was a constant question with how do we create something where it can sort of exist in this book and serve the needs of this plot or these characters without you know Con- contradicting yeah without yeah. contradicting or having to be brought up later in any other of the media that they do while you're on wikipedia poking around on their listeners make sure to to get Longorley firmly established on there this this has to happen i wonder if it is we'll have to check it'll be on wikipedia at some point it has to be right <laughs> let's check cuz all that <laughs> stuff winds up on there especially if it's if it's revisited, which um, at least the name will be. You guys interview yourself. I'm going to check this. Ben. Yeah. What is it, Ben? Um, what was your favorite Star Wars action figure? Probably Boba Fett. Is that right? No, Hammerhead. Oh, Hammerhead. loved Hammerhead. It was more textural, I think. Well, guys, Lon yes. Gorley's not on Wikipedia. Well, not yet. The no. book's not out yet. It comes out March 8th, and you yeah. can pre-order it from Amazon March right now. March the 8th be with you, everyone. That's yeah. right. Star and Wars Day. <laughs> let's talk <laughs> Star Wars Day plus four. Yeah, March no, wait, 4th. No, minus a bunch. Let's talk about March 8th, because that's a significant day where you're doing a bit of a book release party and show, right? We are. It's a benefit for public counsel. Uh, which is, you know, our book is called Star Wars Join the Resistance, and it now seems like a better time than ever to do something Resistance-themed. I did Jimmy Pardo's podcast yesterday, and they had two Join the Resistance pins there. Yeah. And they gave me one, and I wore it doubly proud for for the sake of this novel and for the Wait, sake our of novel our has pins? goddamn country. I don't know. Well, I had one. Yeah, the timing yeah. the timing on this book and its title is fortuitous. I would prefer that it weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about this show and that people should come. People should come. Uh, the show is March 8th at Largo at the Cornet here in Los Angeles. Uh, it is a Star Wars-themed benefit slash book release party, so people can get books there and we'll, we'll sign them and stuff. The element of the show with which I'm involved yes. is is not easy for me to contend with. Should we talk about this? I or guess I mean, there's no reason to it. keep it a surprise. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, there are two elements really that I'm not comfortable with. <laughs> a lot of nudity. <laughs> I would have a better time with that. Uh, well, and let's squibs. talk about the main thing. Yeah, let's talk about the, the song that we haven't heard yet. No, thank God. Well, oh, God. <laughs> when I was in college, I even want to say grad school. I think I was in grad school. I wrote a song called Stormtroopers Are People Too. This is Wait. I thought you were a child no. when you did that. <laughs> no, I was well into my 20s. Oh, no. This is fantastic. And it's this all, is better than I imagined. It's one of the first songs I ever wrote. And I, I went on to like love music and do a fair amount of songwriting, and for better or for worse. But this was the first one. And it's horrible. <laughs> it's just horrible. And I got my first four-track recorder, and I recorded it. My roommate at the time was a really good guitarist, so there, there are some... Oh some silver linings in it, but the melody is, it's so repetitive and the, the lyrics are bad, but this was before the prequels. So nobody knew stormtroopers were clones. So I had this whole theory that like, these are people too. We should care about them. And I drew a drawing of a stormtrooper holding a, smelling a daisy and this song, which you should really, you should put that up on the website. Yeah. Here. It's pretty fantastic. The song, 
got on Dr. Demento and Kiss FM and it was proof that all you had to do is write something like one of the early signs is like just write something about nerd and popular culture. It doesn't matter how good it is. People will eat it up. And it taught me an important lesson. Like just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> it was like the n- nuclear weapons test of, of pop culture. And to this day, I, I have a little like nervous tick in me that doesn't allow me to capitalize on just whatever is popular at the time, you mm-hmm. know, which makes a lot of sense as I do this podcast on <laughs> Star Wars movies. But you know what I mean? <laughs> No, there's nothing I mean, contemporary I, on I this podcast. A, yeah, I have a rough relationship with memes is what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> it said the same about you. So we're going to do something with that. We're going to do something with this song. Hopefully we're going to have you perform it. <sighs> the, the crazy thing is, so Matt told me about this maybe a month ago and I was like, we have to do this for the show. And then you emailed me and we're like... Do you have a cassette player? <laughs> I only have this on cassette. No, and I don't have a cassette player, so we had to hunt down a cassette player. We're going to give it a listen and see if we can do something with it. Yeah, um, but and then it'll, it'll be, be Star Wars canon. Yeah, that's right. Everything, everything that they happens do now is <laughs> canon. That's right. What? Everything that happens in our show. Oh <laughs> God, you don't want this in the canon. I can't. I can't allow this to be canon. Like I have to protect canon. No, it's the be... story group is checking, fact checking everything in the show. Oh, it's going to be well, the new. Uh, I mean, it, it holds up. Fact check wise, you can at least depend on okay. that. Yeah, uh, okay. uh, but that'll be fun. So look forward to that. Go to largo-la.com to get tickets. And as we said, it's a benefit for public council who um, provides free legal counsel to underserved communities uh, in Los Angeles. Well, that they, makes they me feel a really lot better. Work. I had no idea that that was part of it. It's, it's for so. a good cause. Okay, I'll do it. It really is. All right, because <laughs> it's it's shaping up to be a really cool line. I'm at best. Yes, I saw that too. Yeah, and follow ben, the Bens or me, and you'll get this information in yeah. the timeline at some um, point. Ahmed should come do this show. I would love to have him. That'd on be show. fun. He's yeah. a great guy. I would especially we'll love to we'll have him. He played Jar Jar Binks in the uh, prequel movies in Serpico, and <laughs> is a lovely guy. And, uh, it took me out of it. <laughs> <laughs> they put me in it. <laughs> we saw undercover. <laughs> Anything else you guys need to tell us about this book? Other than I think people should just eat this up go get it go enjoy it it looks like a pretty quick read it is i mean yeah. look it's a it's a young adult book uh but oh, we, it's a they call it a middle grade book uh, which is a technical term and not an insult you mean like <laughs> for middle grades yeah like yeah. like junior high yeah like oh, seventh eighth okay, grade great. god eighth, i would have eaten grade. this up at the time it is if you uh read the first harry potter it is that uh, grade book, uh, that type of reading. But, did, you know, this, look, we wrote it for our middle grade selves. Mm-hmm. We had a great time doing it. And why don't just, you, yeah, why don't you read the first chapter? I just right saw now. my name in here. <laughs> oh my God. I got a, I got a shiver. Here it is. I'm just going to read you a small excerpt. Is sure. that okay? Yeah. Mattis had been ready for an adventure for as long as he could remember. From the first time he heard the stories about the scrappy and courageous rebellion overthrowing the dark and giant empire, Mattis knew his place in the universe was as a galactic champion like Luke Skywalker or Leia Organa or even Admiral Akbar, who will appear later in this novel. Those names loomed <laughs> large meta. for Mattis, even if they, as if they'd been carved into a 50-meter tall stone tablets, hearing their stories along with the older kids at the orphan farm in Lund Gorley as they tilled the Hemel Fields or drift shuttled to the firmest temples stirring something in Mattis. Wow. We're in the same sentence as Mike Carm. This is great. You've arrived. This is great. You want to own a piece of history? Pick up this book. Ben Acker, Ben Blacker, thank you guys for talking about this. Thanks for having us, Matt. Thank you, the Bens. 
and it's true there will be a live book release party March 8th at Largo and I will be doing something with this song and the worst part of it is that one of the guests just announced is in fact Weird Al Yankovic so he'll be performing one of his legitimate Star Wars songs and I'll be doing this in the same show with the understanding that thank God he's the nicest man in the world is there to witness this abomination that I have written I do have a like a palpable amount of dread for this because it's like meeting someone you really respect and then putting your worst foot forward. <laughs> so you don't want to miss this? I do. March 8th at Largo. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about this show on Twitter at I was there to pod at Matt Gorley and on Instagram at Matt Gorley and letterboxed at Matt Gorley. Until next time. See you next time. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.